0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NosillaCast podcast, hosted at Podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 15th, 2021, and this is show number 849. Last week, I forgot to mention that I had the pleasure of being on the Clockwise podcast again with Dan Morin and Micah Sargent. I felt terrible because twice in a row before this time, I had to tell him I couldn't be on because I'd lost my voice. So it was really great to finally be on with them again. This time, the other guest was Carolina... Wait, no, Carolina... Carolina Milanese, who was fantastic fun. We talked about whether we'd had to reset up any tech gear at home because of the pandemic resurgent. And in another lovely topic, we talked about how the somewhat vigilante-style intended app Citizen was adding a new service. Then we changed gears and had a lot of fun talking about examples of where we replaced more technical products with low-tech solutions, and then my question was I asked how the other folks do or don't stream audio through their homes, including negotiating home-wide audio with their housemates. As always, you can find Clockwise number 410 in your podcatcher of choice or link in the show notes. Well, I'm also starting to be on the Daily Tech News show pretty regularly, and it's always a great pleasure. On August 10th's episode of DTNS, Sarah Lane couldn't be there, so I held down the fort with Tom Merritt and Roger Chang. After covering the daily news, we talked through each of the Apple rumors from Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, which of course I enjoyed. I also enjoyed hearing Tom say my tagline at the beginning. You can find DTNS 4091, culturally emoji, in your podcatcher of choice and of course at a link in the show notes. No, everyone knows that my tagline says I have an ever-so-slight Apple bias. I figure, you know, lean in rather than have people think that they're being mean by calling me an Apple fangirl. Well, this week, I am categorically not an Apple fangirl. And it's not because my Mac pauses for two seconds if I try to use the caps lock key or if autocorrect is enabled. It's also not because my brand new AirPods stop working properly. They're draining to 0% while in the charging case. It's not because the replacements from Apple have traveled through 11 cities and taken more than a week to get to me. It's not because my Mac won't find any of Apple's apps via Spotlight. It can only find third-party apps. None of those things has made me furious with Apple this week, like the story I'm about to tell you. On Tuesday, August 3rd, I purchased the new Magic Keyboard with Touch ID for M1 Max. I was excited to get on it very quickly, so I'd have an early delivery date because I knew this was going to be a big seller. What I didn't realize, as I authorized Apple Pay using my Apple credit card, was that the system had changed my default shipping address to my daughter Lindsay's house because of a previous purchase. I definitely did not do that myself. Anyway, as I was doing this purchase of the keyboard, Face ID kicked in instantly and it was too late for me to stop it. I immediately called Apple to explain the problem. Joel told me, this is an easy fix, but it couldn't be fixed until a shipper was identified. I thought that was a little bit weird, but he assured me that he was sending my information to the people who would make the change and that this happens all the time, so not to worry. I did worry because waiting for humans to remember to do something in the future is always fraught with danger. The next day, Wednesday the 4th, I got a notification from Apple confirming my order and that it was still going to Lindsay's house. I called Apple again and Dante told me not to worry. He said he could see that they were working on it but that it still didn't have a shipper. I expressed my concern, but he was firm that this would all work out. The next day, Thursday the 5th, I got a notification from Apple delighted, delightedly telling me that my purchase was out for delivery to my daughter's house. I called Apple for the third time and I spoke to Amy. She saw all the notes that told the story and she assured me that she could intercept the package on the truck by calling the shipper herself and get it redirected to my home. I expressed my disbelief that this would work, as never, in my experience, has a package been stopped once it's on the truck. I asked Amy what we would do when, not if, the keyboard got delivered to Lindsay. She said it wouldn't be a problem that I could call back and schedule FedEx to go get it back. I told her no work should be asked of Lindsay because she didn't cause this, and it was all Apple's fault, and so Lindsay should have to do nothing. Amy assured me that it wouldn't be any work for her beyond printing out a shipping label. Amy also said she would arrange for another keyboard to be shipped to me. I mentioned how disappointed I was that I wouldn't get it quickly because they're out of stock now, and she assured me that people with this kind of problem get first priority. I told Amy that I felt I should be compensated in some way for the complete mess that Apple had made of this situation, and she offered me a $50 credit. I agreed. That was a good gesture. So, of course, the keyboard got delivered to Lindsay's house that very day. I called back to Apple on Friday, the 6th of August, and I spoke to Vess. She looked at all the information from the previous three people and had no good answer why none of them seemed to do what they said they were going to do. She then told me that she'd send a FedEx label, as Amy had said would happen, but that my daughter would have to either drive the uh, the box to FedEx or call them on the phone to schedule a pickup. I was furious that she'd have to do any extra work after Amy promised otherwise. Around this time, Vess started trying to figure out how to initiate the replacement keyboard because (laughs) guess what? Amy never did it. So Vess was talking about how she was kind of worried that the two actions, the return and the replacement, might get tangled. At that point, four days in, I hit the end of my rope. I told her, cancel my original order. I don't even want it anymore and let Lindsay return the original and I was done. Lindsay took the keyboard to FedEx on August 6th. I was able to obtain proof of delivery to Apple from FedEx on the 10th of August. So it took four days from when FedEx picked it up until it got in Apple's hands. As of the 11th of August, I still didn't have the refund. I called Apple and I spoke to Marine in sales and asked immediately to speak to a supervisor. She told me that since the sale was complete, she couldn't help me, but she transferred me to an after-sales customer service rep. You can imagine this elicited a squeal of delight from me. So Danny had the pleasure of taking my call. He did immediately start the process to have me talk to a supervisor, but he insisted that I tell him what was going on first, including what was my order number, my name, and all that nonsense. He told me in 34 minutes, a supervisor would call me back. That was the wait time. Now, if you thought I was annoyed already, the end of the story gets even better. I did not get a call back in 34 minutes from the supervisor. No, Corey called me back five hours later, and five hours later was smack dab in the middle of dinner. I was quite angry, and Corey said the words a boomer never likes to hear. He said, not a problem. Now, I know for the youngsters, not a problem means something different than it means to me, but my reaction was, oh, yes, Corey, it actually is a problem. You called five hours late and in the middle of my dinner. He agreed to call me back in 20 minutes. Now, I do have to say, Corey did call me in precisely 20 minutes, but it was one of the most unsatisfactory calls I've ever had. Corey explained to me that he could see that Apple had indeed refunded the money to my bank. I explained, and possibly not the calmest of tones, that the bank to which he was referring was my Apple card. He said, no, Goldman Sachs is your bank. He said it would take another three to five days for the bank to pay me back. We went back and forth a bit, during which time I calmed down, but I decided I was just going to keep him on the phone. Turns out, as long as you don't swear and you're not abusive in any way, they simply are not allowed to hang up on you. Corey said many things that simply weren't true during this time, and I called him on each one. At one point, I asked him if he was going to hang up on me because he seemed to be becoming agitated. I was very calm at this point. He said he would not hang up on me. He offered to send me the proof that Apple had paid my bank and I said, yes, I would very much like that. Note that he never sent me this information. We kept going back and forth and suddenly he said, no, I am not going to reveal any of my personal information. I thought that was a very weird comment, but I think I know what he was doing. Confused, I said, I never asked you for any personal information. But shortly after that, I asked to speak to his supervisor and he hung up. The only thing I can think of is, I think that last sentence he put in there about asking about his personal information, he was trying to put that into the record to imply that I had asked for personal information, thereby giving him the allowance to hang up. On Friday, August 13th, nine days after this debacle began and a full seven days after Lindsay gave the keyboard to FedEx, Apple refunded me the cost of the keyboard. But they gave me $100, not the $150 the keyboard costs, which means They didn't really give me $50 for my trouble. Six phone calls, nine days of annoyance, and I didn't get a keyboard from Apple, and I didn't even get 50 bucks. But here's the best part of the story. I got a survey request from Apple asking me to tell them about my purchase experience. Sadly, they limited me to 4,000 characters, so I just used real small words so they could understand. Okay, let's cleanse our palates from that and have a fun review by Nightwise. If you haven't heard Nightwise before, you're in for a treat. He's brilliant and has one of the most twisted senses of humor I've ever encountered.
1: A while ago, friend of the show, Cyberpunk Librarian, told me something about an app called Joplin. It's a cross-platform, self-hosted, note-taking application that was supposed to be the bee's knees when it came to note-taking and to-do lists. Well, I was curious, but I dismissed the notion at first, because it all smelled a little bit too much like Stallman's sandals. Some technical mumpu jumbo some port-forwarding, some config editing, and just to get it to play nice with your self-hosted Nextcloud instance, well, no thank you. I'll let technology work for me, instead of growing a beard, yelling freedom, and being the retirement's home last standing virgin. But curiosity did get the best of me, and I decided to give it a try. Before that, I'd been mostly taking my notes in OneNote. This cross-platform app does run on all of my operating systems, and the iOS version allows me to merrily scribble down notes and doodles when I'm in a meeting on my iPad. But although OneNote is a fine application, the way it handles pages and notebooks is probably not always the best way. Writing up a note that you can later print to a page in a readable fashion is not always obvious because you have no idea about the virtual size of the paper you are writing on. For that reason, when it comes to scribbling down notes with a stylus, I've switched to the Mac iOS combo of good notes that deals with the link between the virtual and the actual paper size a lot better. But hey, we can either talk about the geopolitical social structure of Smurftown some more or get back to the point. Joplin. So, let's talk about pounding out small or large notes on a keyboard. Don't you dare mention the name Evernote. By the time it took to get a Linux version of this application, dinosaurs had went extinct twice, and entire alien civilizations have seeded and perished. Eventually, even the capital investors of the application even told the Evernote teams to start making money. And turning the application into a paid service, its popularity had been waning anyway, proved to be the fatal proverbial bullet in the head it deserved ages ago. So, let's get back to Joplin then. Can it save us? Well, when you like to scribble and jot down stuff, no. For that, you need to look towards another application, or just buy a pen and a piece of paper. There is no stylus support in Joplin, but you can make multiple notebooks and fill them up with notes and to-dos for when you are planning to overtake the planet with your minion army of pink Lego figurines. And if you are that special kind of evil and twisted overlord that just loves to confuse his enemies, you can even write up stuff in Markdown and the 4Paint interface will translate that gibberish into well-formed text that is readable by mere mortals. So go ahead, punk, mark it up. After that, you can sync your notes and notebooks with a lot of services. Out of the box, both Dropbox and OneNote, even the business versions, are supported. But if you distrust the cloud or would like to keep your strawberry shortcake with ground-up gummy bears recipe a state secret, well, then you can go self-host it. Either store the database on your drive or use your own Nextcloud instance and sync it over webdav. All of your bases are now belong to you, so go nuts. But... What got me even more excited over Joplin is the fact that it runs on everything. Well, I gotta say, almost everything. I tried installing Joplin on the family Chihuahua, and not only doesn't that compile very well, the poor thing still has a kernel panic every time it needs to take a poop. But when it comes to computers, phone, and tablets, there are only a few where Joplin will not work on. Let's begin with the desktop version light and simpler application that does what it needs to do. Take down notes. The friendly folks at Joplin even understood our vampire-like tendencies to abhor black letters on a white background. It burns the eyes and lets us choose many geeky teams. We love the solarized Dark the most because it's fun to work with and it makes shoulder surface think that you are coding for the Matrix. The desktop version that runs on Linux, OS X, and Windows synchronizes with the cloud at a regular interval. You can have plenty of layout options for your text, and you can add in some text if your creativity is so deranged that you can't organize your notes in a single notebook. On mobile I've tested the iOS version of the app, but an Android version is available. And on the iPad Pro and on the iPhone it works just fine. Both applications have nearly the same functionality as the desktop applications, but are better suited for the smaller screen. The smartphone version gives you a handy way to add stuff to your notes, or use the to-do list feature. If you are feeling brave, you can even use the dictation function of your smartphone to spell out your latest erotic furry novel while riding the subway. Just remember, Fifty Shades of Grey was written on a Blackberry, and now look where it got them. Even on the iPad, the setup of Joplin is clean and productive, and even with only a touch keyboard, I was able to pound out the words to this little article. But finally, let's nerd out. Let's go to the command line. Oh yes, my favorite part about Joplin might just be that it has a command line app. Why in the age of 4K tablets and ultra-wide displays running on computers with graphic cards powerful enough to rule a third world country with an artificial intelligence do we need this? I don't know, but it's just cool because I can. Some googling and tinkering got me to the point where I managed to run Joplin on my Raspberry Pi and access it over Telnet and SSH, and boy, it looks good. Setting up the sync is a little tedious and synchronization is manual unless you want to do a cron job, but the command line distraction-free interface just looks way cool. I can just imagine people thinking that I'm this high-strung hacker type slicing away at some evil firewall while I'm actually cataloging my My Little Pony action figure collection alphabetically. Because you can even choose your own text editor. I'm a nano newbie, but if you're a real maniac, you might even want to pick VI or IMAX. Then again, you also might prefer to roast your marshmallows over the crater of an active volcano. Whichever is your preference. The only flip side to this self-hosted nerd-first approach to note-taking is that the web interface is a lot harder to come by. So forget the ubiquitous cloud storage with infinite bandwidth and near endless uptime. If you want to do yourself some cloud soup, stand by to cut your own web service vegetables on your own machine. You know, you want it to be cool? Work for it. I'll I'll post a link to how to do that somewhere in the show notes. But aside from having no native cloud interface, Joplin is everything Evernote should have been and more. Nice and clean, fast and furious, nerd-friendly note-taking with an open-source twist.
0: Well, thanks Nightwise for your unique way of describing an awesome tool. As soon as I got done listening to uh, Nightwise's review of Joplin, I installed it on my iPad Pro and on my Mac. And what Nightwise neglected to mention is that Joplin is beautiful. I mean, sure, it's nerd-friendly, but it's also human-friendly. I mean, it's so pretty that I double-checked to see if it was truly open source. The interface is elegant and clean, and the included help notebooks are right at your fingertips, all written in Markdown, of course. Now if you're unfamiliar with Markdown, I don't want you to be afraid of it. It's a syntax that allows you to make headings, bullets, numbered lists, italics, underlined, bold, and headings. I said headings already. Anyway, in a very simple, human-readable format. For example, an asterisk starts a bulleted list. An underscore on either side of a word makes it italics. You can read it, and it's easy to remember at least the basic syntax, and it renders on the web beautifully. It's worth learning, in my opinion. But now back to Joplin. I have to say, I do prefer the Mac version to the iPad version because the Mac version deals better with a widescreen device. On the iPad, the writing pane is full width, which means it's very hard to read what you've written if you've written like big long form content like I do. You only see, uh, you also only see your markdown view on the iPad and you have to tap back to see the results of the markdown formatting. In contrast, on the Mac, you get a two-pane view where you see both your markdown writing area and the rendered view side by side. That also means the writing area is a nice width for reading. Now, remember, I said this was, we both said it was open source. I submitted this as as a comment, a suggestion to the open source team, and the lead developer actually wrote back and said, yeah, you know, this is something we can look into doing. We might be able to do that on the iPad as well. So, when Nightwise said Joplin works in Markdown, I expected it to be just a plain text editor, where all you could put in was text. Like uh, with my favorite writing tool right now is Ulysses, it's just text. You really, well, there is sort of a janky way you can embed images, but I, I don't like the way it does it. So this is sort of a rich text format as well. So by that, I mean you can embed images, videos, and audio files, and they'll play right within your notes. I haven't seen a Markdown editor that can do that before. Um, It's it's real intuitive. You just drag it in and it shows up. It, It works really well. So I chose the default Dropbox hosting for my Joplin notebooks, but I did take a look at running Joplin on my Synology NAS in a Docker container. I found a terrific step-by-step set of instructions on how to install Joplin on a Synology NAS by a gentleman named Marius Hosting, or his site is called Marius Hosting, but I stopped when it got to the part about setting up port forwarding. I'm sure I'll do this eventually, but I need to walk through the security implications with someone before I do it. Plus, you know what? Dropbox works for me, and I'm not writing up any state secrets. If you've been looking for a beautiful note-taking app that's free and open source and syncs across all your devices through a method of your own choosing, I think Joplin is a terrific option. Our hero of this week is Kirit Vora, who made a very generous pledge on Patreon. Kirat is a longtime listener, and I know that because he first wrote to me about the show back in 2010, 11 years ago. You know, if you're a longtime listener and you've been getting value out of the show, please consider being awesome like Kirat and go to podfeet.com/slash Patreon and choose a dollar amount that reflects the value you feel you receive. Remember, you can reduce or increase your pledge at any time. And if you ever need to or even just want to stop contributing, that's as easy as a push button as well. But try not to do that. Anyway, thank you very much, Kirat. You made my day. Speaking of writing apps. Last year, I wrote an article explaining why I use five different apps to take notes. One of the apps I talked about was Ulysses for writing my draft blog posts. I have found that writing on my iPad Pro with the Magic Keyboard is a great way for me to focus, and I love that keyboard, and Ulysses being cross-platform between Mac and iPadOS makes it ideal. Now, there are a lot of uh, cross-platform options, but Ulysses wins because it supports Text Expander on the iPad. Now, I'm not talking about the Text Expander keyboard for iOS, which works, but it's a little clumsy to have to jump in and out of keyboards. I'm talking about native support within the app with the normal on screen or external keyboard, just like you can do it on macOS. It's glorious, but only if you can figure out how to enable Text Expander with Ulysses. Oddly, this feature does not appear to be very well documented, either from the Text Expander side. Or from the Ulysses side, and you need to do things in both apps to enable this capability. I find myself wasting a great deal of time trying to figure out how to get this to work, so I decided to write it up for myself and share it with everyone else. The initial setup on the Text Expander side is documented in a support article called Text Expander Enha- Enhanced Apps for iOS 74 and Counting. It's a great blog post if you want to go see what all the apps are that are Text Expander enhanced. In that same article, they tell you how to flip a switch to allow TextExpander to share snippets with TextExpander-enhanced apps, one of which is Ulysses. But even this article doesn't really give you the step-by-step process with, I don't know, like screenshots? It says, under Text Expander Settings, as the first step. Well, where are TextExpander Settings? It's not in the Mac app, and it's not in Settings on iOS. You have to open the Text Expander app on your iOS device to find the settings they're talking about. When you first open the Text Expander app on your iPhone or iPad, there are two tabs at the top Groups and Notes. If the app opens to the Notes tab for you, as it does sometimes for me, you won't be able to find the Settings menu. If you switch to the Groups tab, only then will you see a gear in the bottom left for Settings. Once you're in Settings, then you can see the section for Text Expander Enhanced Apps, and you can finally toggle on Share Snippets. Now that was the easy part. Next, we have to uncover the hidden secret of enabling snippet syncing inside Ulysses. Now if you've been around for a bit, you know that enabling features is done through some sort of settings screen. Ulysses makes finding settings a bit of an adventure. You might understandably be fooled by the gear in the upper right on the library view. You can dig into that menu as long as you want, and you won't find the settings to enable Text Expander Snippet Expansion. Instead, you have to go into a note to get to the settings. How weird is that? Like, you got to open a note. So if you open any new or existing note, you'll see an icon in the upper right that looks like a circle with three dots inside it. When you tap the circle three dot icon, one option in the dropdown is Editor Settings. I cannot explain why Editor Settings isn't in the main settings under the gear, but that's why I'm writing up this tutorial. Even when you look at Editor Settings, you might be baffled. You're looking for an option in there called Substitutions. Inside Substitutions, you'll find toggles for things like auto-capitalization, auto-correction, and check spelling. Below that, you'll find two things we need to enable. The first is a simple toggle that finally says Enable Text Expander but the second is a button that says Update Snippets. The first time you tap on Update Snippets, you'll see a flash where Text Expander briefly comes up on screen and disappears and you're back in Ulysses. You're actually back to the substitution menu inside Ulysses. Once you've done the Update Snippets dance, you have glorious access to all of your snippets within Ulysses. All right, now you're happily writing away in Ulysses with access to all your snippets. Months go by and it's been wonderful. And then one day, you try to type a snippet, and just that one snippet doesn't expand, while all other snippets do expand. Now, I, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I suspect this is caused when you add a new snippet on your Mac in Text Expander, and Ulysses doesn't automatically get the update. I suppose you could be creating it in uh, Text Expander on the iPad or iPhone too, but I generally do my snippet creation over on the Mac. So anyway, what's happening is you're creating that new snippet somewhere, but Ulysses doesn't automatically get the update to your snippets file. This is precisely when you're going to need to find this blog post again. You have to remember to open Ulysses on your iOS device and create a new note or open an existing one, tap the circle with the three dots in it, select editor settings, select substitutions, and then select update snippets. Now you can start writing again with access to all of your glorious snippets. Until it happens again. Well, the bottom line is that I love Ulysses because it syncs between my iPad Pro with Magic Keyboard and my Mac, and because it lets me write with Text Expander. Now that I've documented how to update my snippets, I won't have to dig around figuring it out again. Of course, that's assuming I remember that I wrote this blog post. Seven years ago, our daughter Lindsay and her husband Nolan had the very rare opportunity to get seats in the front row right behind home plate at a San Diego Padres game at Petco Park. Before they left, they set up their TiVo to record the game in hopes of getting video of themselves in these amazing seats. It worked, and it was really fun for them to have that recording. Time has marched on, and a few years ago, they stopped using this ancient TiVo, which was actually a hand-me-down from us after we stopped using it. It was a Series 3 HD, which was released in 2008, so it's now 13 years old. Now, they didn't get rid of it because it had that memorable video of the Padres game on it. They asked us whether we might find some way to get that video off of it to save for posterity. Steve remembered that ages ago, we had some software that could pull video from our Tivos, as long as the shows were not protected by Digital Rights Management, also known as DRM. Steve hunted around and he found the open-source CTIVO application he used to run. We hooked the TiVo up to our network, found it in the CTIVO application, and there was DRM in the recording. So, sadly, we couldn't use C- CTIVO to download the video from the TiVo. The next option was to pursue what is affectionately referred to as the analog hole. Since DRM is a digital technology... If instead we used an analog out from the device, then DRM doesn't have any effect. Luckily, there's no such thing as analog rights management. In the old days, we had a giant camcorder that recorded video to VHS-C tapes, which were smallish versions of VHS. These little tapes fit into a full-size VHS adapter for playback with a VCR. These little tapes were expensive and the big tapes were cheap, so Steve bought a two-deck VHS player and copied multiple little tapes onto the big tapes. Eventually, when DVDs became a thing, we bought a device called a Dazzle Hollywood DV Bridge so that Steve could transfer our precious home movies from VHS to DVD. Later, Steve ripped the DVDs and made digital files of our home movies— They've been transcoded from VHSC to VHS to DVD to disc, but they're finally on a medium that isn't allowing them to degrade. Now I bring that whole story up because this same Hollywood DV bridge would, in theory, allow us to use the analog hole to get the video off of the aged TiVo. The Series 3 TiVo has composite, video, and audio out, those red, white, yellow RCA jacks. And it also has an S-video out connector. Composite video and audio would have worked, but since this was a high-def recording, Steve chose the S-Video connection for video because it would would give us better support for the 1080p recordings, even though they're going to be an analog format. The Hollywood DV Bridge is an analog-to-digital converter. On one side, it has, amongst other options, an S-Video input, and on the other side, it has a FireWire 400 digital output port. You can guess what the next problem to be solved might be. Our current computers do not support firewire connectors. They have USB-C connectors. We're going to have to visit Dongletown. You know, when the USB-C craze first hit the market, people lost their ever-loving minds about having to live in Dongletown. But, you know, we've been in Dongletown for at least a decade, and we save at least one of each dongle in our collection over the years. I was sure that if we strung enough dongles together, we could get this to work. It only took 3 dongles after the initial dongle if you will that is the analog to digital converter. Dongle 1 was a Sonnet FireWire 400 to 800 adapter. Dongle 2 was a FireWire 800 to Thunderbolt 2 adapter, you know the one shaped like mini display port. Now I have to confess that we had to make a trip to the Apple store to get dongle number 3, a Thunderbolt 2 to Thunderbolt 3 USB-C adapter to go into Steve's iMac. So to review, we're going from S-Video and Composite Audio to the ADD converter box to FireWire 400 to FireWire 800 to Thunderbolt 2 to Thunderbolt 3. This has to work, right? Oh, well, you know, a few years ago I wrote a post entitled, Just because you can plug it in doesn't mean it'll work. But we still remain optimistic that we would be victorious. Steve dragged the mess of dongles to the back of his iMac, plugged in the USB-C connector, and launched Final Cut Pro, and miraculously, it recognized the Hollywood DV bridge. Even better, when he hit play on the TiVo, he was able to see the video playing on Final Cut's import window. Huzzah! Steve would be able to make a digital recording of this analog playback. Except that when he told Final Cut to record, it didn't. I don't mean it didn't record, I I, I don't mean it recorded black because of DRM. I mean, it just didn't record anything at all. He's done a lot of recording from the Hollywood DV bridge when he transcoded our VHS tapes, but he had never seen this problem before. He fussed around with every menu he could find, and finally he had to give up. Next, I suggested that he set up his iPhone on a tripod and point it at a TV screen playing the TiVo video. Wouldn't be as good as it would have been with our Dongletown solution, but at least they'd get the recording. He gave it a try, darkening the room and setting up so the video filled much of the iPhone display, but the result was not very good at all. The main problem was that there were jaggies and interference patterns in the final video because of the mismatch in frame rates and pixel resolutions, but also the iPhone kept trying to autofocus as the scene changed. I really should have thought ahead of time to set up autofocus lock, but the other artifacts were too crummy anyway. Lindsay and Nolan said it was good enough, but Steve wasn't happy with such a low-quality recording and he was sure there must be a way to do it right. After leaving the project to gather dust for a few weeks, he took another run at it and he got the idea to post a question in the Final Cut Pro forums to try to figure out why he couldn't record. Very soon after posting, Steve got this response from Tom Wolski, who is a Level 10 Apple Final Cut Pro community member. That's the highest level. Tom suggested, try using the QuickTime player. He said, go to File, New Movie Recording. You're probably not getting timecode from the converter, which FCP, or Final Cut Pro, requires. Guess what? It worked. Steve was able to capture the video by creating a new movie recording in QuickTime, and then he was able to open the video for editing in Final Cut. For some reason, the video out of the TiVo was in the wrong aspect ratio, but with a little bit of aspect ratio math, Steve was able to fix it in Final Cut he edited the hours-long baseball game to around seven minutes that highlighted Lindsay and Nolan behind home plate. He exported the video and put it on our Plex server with our home movies, and Lindsay and Nolan were delighted with the result. I love this story because so many of my tech adventures seem like they should be super easy and then everything is so fiddly that it never works. Well, this time, the probability of success was so low, and yet everything worked out and our kids have their precious memories. Now, can I interest you in a heavily used 13-year-old Series 3 HD TiVo? Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You could go to podfeet.com slash Patreon like Kirit did and support the show. If you don't like that idea, do a one-time donation at podfee.com PayPal. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can come to podfee.com Facebook or podfee.com Slack. And if you want to join the fun of the live show like Bodie did this week, head on over to podfee.com live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.